We're in the middle of a series on the relationship of Christians and the church to society. We're trying to work out that, that relationship in our minds. This series is going to be a little bit freer than normal. I'm prescribing less. I'm describing more and letting you kind of do more talking because there is a lot of books on this topic and most of them end with a big shrug like, you know, because there's so many ways to approach this issue. If you're just joining us, here's kind of uh, what we've been doing so far. In the first week, we just started with a big intro, just let people talk, and we used two models to kind of get us moving. You know, what is the role of the church? We know some things we're supposed to be involved in. We talked about preaching the gospel, evangelism, those things. We know the church is supposed to do that, but just as a teaser to get us opened up, we asked, is the church supposed to be involved in protests over a mosque, for example? We heard from you on that. Or should we even get involved in the fray over same-sex marriage? Are there more important things for the church to be doing, or is that important for the church to be doing? Do we split up and decide, like some people do this and some people do other things? And we heard from you on a different set of beliefs from you. Some of you had ideas in different places. Last week, we took on the issue of civic religion. The kind of confusion, the conflation that so many of us have about the place of religion and faith and spirituality, especially when it gets mixed up with patriotism in our country. And we kind of traced the roots last week, if you remember, of how we got some of these confused notions of spirituality and faith in this country especially. And the reason I did that, just so you know, I, last week felt like a history lesson for some of you. The reason we do that is I think many of us just don't know. I mean, if somebody were to say to you, I think this country was once a Christian nation, we don't really even know, we don't know enough of history to evaluate that statement or to take it apart. Or if somebody that we know is kind of confusing issues of their own patriotism or nationalism with issues of faith, how do we even start to talk to them about it if we don't know anything about how we got here? And that's usually the case with many of us. We kind of woke up whenever we were born. We barely know what happened last week, let alone 200 years ago, and how we got the kind of system we have. So we did that last week. Tonight, we're starting to really delve into how should we relate church and society? How do we come together? I'm going to be asking more questions and having you answer, again, more descriptive than prescriptive. But... I want to point out that we're going through a bunch of books. Like, I've decided not to just pull out a huge amount of material from these books uh, because it's too much. And like I said, because most of them end with some kind of formula, but they all disagree. Uh, and rather than try to come up with weeks and weeks of information, I'm actually reading these books, and then I'm pulling things out of it. And some of the questions that we're actually using to engage you come from here. So just in case you want to know specifically where I'm getting something, I can point you to the right book. But so far, we've read The Anonymous God. That's edited by David Adams, an excellent book on that kind of confusion of patriotism and religion in this country. Uh, D.A. Carson's Christ and Culture Revisited. Uh, Stanley Hauerwas, just, it, it, these are older books, but very good. Resident Aliens and its follow-up, which is After Christendom. And finally, we're going to head to an interesting book by James Hunter called To Change the World. I'll tell you more about that one at the end of the series. It has an interesting ending. Just so you know, we're not just, you know, just winging it. There actually is a lot of work behind this. And I want to point out one other thing. Whenever you hear people talk about church and society or Christ and culture, you'll eventually hear somebody mention Richard Niebuhr. Not to be confused with Reinhold Niebuhr, but Richard Niebuhr. And he kind of created this five-fold typology, and I'm going to ditch it. 
The reason is, he wrote it in 1951. It's taught in any church and society class you take, but the way they teach it is they teach it, and then they kind of crumple it up and tell you why it doesn't apply anymore. Every book I've picked up so far talks about why it doesn't go far enough, why it's grounded in its time, all those kinds of things. But I just want you to know that it's there because you might hear about it. And the classic forms that he sets up are, what is the relationship between Christ and culture? And he says there's five ways you could look at it. You could say Christ is against culture. Christ is actually dominated by culture, or more precisely, maybe Christians get dominated by the culture itself. Christ can be above culture, kind of working it all out. Christ and culture can be in paradox, kind of that maybe the future fulfillment, the now and not yet period. Or Christ can be transforming culture. But as I said, they're just categories that people have been debating for a long time, and every single book that picks it up criticizes it. So I thought, well, why would we go through this whole exercise and end up just giving critiques? But I wanted you to know that it was there. So let's start with that. And if you don't mind, I'm going to open up in prayer because I'm drained completely today. And I want to be focused on what we're doing. Let's pray. God, you call us to love you with all of our mind in addition to our heart and our soul and our strength. And tonight, Lord, let us exercise those things. Spirit, move in us. Let us find in these words, let us find in these ideas something of the church you want us to be. Help us to reach and stretch forward towards the goal. And Lord, use this time to remind us of what you want. We pray this in your name. Amen. One of the things I noticed this week as I was looking at this is the reason these kind of categories are hard to figure out is because nobody fits any category easily. I was reading this story about Colorado Christian University. And it's a Christian university that they fired this guy named Andrew Paquin. He was their most beloved teacher on campus. And the reason they fired Andrew was because he had just the unbelievable bad taste of saying that it's possible that Jesus would not have supported capitalism. All right? So the university people couldn't have any of this. So at Colorado Christian University, they terminated his contract. He could no longer come back to campus and teach. And this kind of created an uproar because... The school thought it was completely justified, and the people who were supporters of him thought that it was crazy to think that the Bible supported capitalism in any way, and this kind of debate ensued. So I went on to the website of Colorado Christian University, and I thought about this, and the reason I'm looking at these categories, just to give you this example, like Christ against culture. This seems to be an example of people when they say we're against certain things in culture. You know, like the, the article goes on to talk about how People who are fundamentalists in nature, they like, don't like certain things. Like, we don't like drinking, we don't like gambling, we don't, we don't like certain things in the culture. We're against it. But the critique was, isn't it kind of funny that sometimes culture shapes them? And doesn't culture always shape Christians, is the question I'm raising. Doesn't living in America somehow make you think that Jesus was a capitalist? Isn't it true that if you were in another country, maybe that thought would have never even occurred to you? Or that you would found an entire university based on that notion? Here's the mission statement of Colorado Christian University. They want to impact our culture in support of traditional family values, sanctity of life, compassion for the poor, biblical view of human nature. So far, that's probably somewhere in the Bible. Here are the rest of them. Limited government, personal freedom, free markets, natural law, original intent of the Constitution, and Western civilization. That's the stated purpose of the university. Right, exactly. I was reading that again. Like the state, that, that's, what they, that, that's what they want to aim. They want to impact society for limited government, free markets. Like that's why you go to this university. So I've decided that 
Officially, we're going to give them like a diploma. We're going to rename them Redneck University <laughs> for that kind of conflation of tasks. So now you can go there if you want to. You can get your degree. But isn't that what happens all the time to us? That the culture that we live in actually ends up shaping our view of Christ rather than the other way around for all of those who are excited about transforming culture. I dare say one of the dangers that happens the other way around. All right. I'm going to be done talking in a second. I'm going to hear from you. Here's the question that I'm going to start with tonight. Should we be set apart from the rest of culture and society? Asked another way, somebody would say, should we withdraw entirely? Should we just kind of disengage from culture? And I know I don't want a yes or no answer right away. What I'd really like to say is, I'd like you to give me the pros and cons. And I want to hear from you because... There are so many of them listed, and I thought, why tell you what other people think? Let's hear what you think they are. So let's start with, if you could even come up with some, what are the pros of separating ourselves from the rest of the culture in some way? And I don't mean complete separation. I mean just like starting to pull ourselves away and say, we just can't engage it or transform it. We need to kind of protect our own and what we believe. Any pros for that? Anyone even support that view? Yeah. I can say there would be less hypocrisy if we actually practiced what we were preaching. We would be different. We wouldn't be the same as everybody else. We wouldn't be engaging in the same things. We would be preaching and practicing the same thing. Okay, Phil? Like withdrawing, like a pro, even though I think like would have definitely cons, but a pro would be if the qualities you want to have in who you are, other people want to have those qualities as well, you're more likely to move in that direction as opposed to like, I mean, who your friends are influence you, like, that idea. Let me address the confusion over maybe withdraw or set apart. I'm throwing up different words because it's a continuum. It's not like a one or the other. Like, for example, the Amish would probably be more, more extreme on withdrawing completely, all right, because of their belief practices. Maybe somewhere not quite as extreme as the Amish might be like Mennonite communities who won't completely withdraw but still really feel a strong sense to be somewhat different. And then you might have all the way at the other extreme people who are still kind of trying to be set apart but are trying to live differently and yet wouldn't go as far as any of those other two communities. They're just trying to somehow be set apart. What are the positives of that? So I heard a couple already. Anything else? Yeah, Megan. I think the idea of like offering an alternative. So offering, you know, like a, I don't want to say like a better life, but I think maybe somewhat in the like, rejections of, of some parts of our culture like if we are able to offer something that's more like authentic or more satisfying I think that that is impactful. Okay. Yeah. I was going to say that there are I mean there are verses in scripture like in the epistles where Paul admonishes different like church communities to be like oh these are the parts don't be like these people you have been taught faith differently. Okay. Like that set apart is like different than withdrawing because like you can be set apart in like the way that we live our lives but if we're withdrawing like you know it's been said they said like offer a better alternative who are we offering it to other christians ourselves we'll, we'll get to the cons in a minute we're not there yet but is there a pro and you can define it the way you want with to withdrawing i don't think there's a pro at all because we're just fooling ourselves if we think that if we all lived in a mountain community together that there'd be no sin everything would be fine like there's no way, like, there's no pro to that. Okay. Yeah, actually, before coming to the seminary, I was 
I, I met one of my professors is Mennonite, and it is really different when you go over to their house, just some of their customs and traditions where I like what Megan said, where there's enough of a difference there to say they actually live differently than just about you know, most people, and they're not totally crazy in doing so, and you can still do things like, let's say, not owning a television like they do, or they actually kind of have a closet, but I mean, or things like that, and they have very strong convictions as to why they don't. It is a good place. I mean, it's, it's very interesting. But it sounds like in that case, we're defining set apart as somehow living distinctly as opposed to living separately. Okay, so would anybody support the living separately? The, let's take, not to be totally extreme, but I mean, I don't think Amish are completely extreme. Um, anyone believe that we should get to the level, for example, of withdrawing to be like an Amish community? Is there a pro to that? Is there a positive to that? Yeah, Alyssa? Um, I think withdrawing completely sounds like a cult. <laughs> and it's like, it's like saying we are this way and this is what we approve of. And when we look at the rest of the world, how are they going to take that? Are they going to say, well, we're loved and accepted by you? No. You know, they're going to they're gonna feel rejected in a way. They're going to feel judged because we're separating ourselves and saying this is what the standard is and this is good and this is what we accept and you are not. And um, so socially that cuts us off from people. But what I, I feel like what we need to do instead is to, um, you know, live with our standards like Jesus and his apostles. They were kind of a group of people, but they weren't... Um, they, they were preaching and they were setting the example and they were out and being um, like aggressive with their movement. Um, they were growing in numbers. They weren't just like saying, okay, we're gonna sit in a sheep pen and you need to come to us and if we accept you, we do. But they were the opposite, you know? That kind of group I feel like is a healthy group. Yeah, I, so I might, have not, might not have expressed that very well. I don't think we should withdraw at all. So I, like, I was completely up more like the B set apart, like live a different lifestyle but not live a removed lifestyle. Not that it's critical that you all know exactly what I think, but I think that you're totally right, Alyssa, in, in maybe the sentiment that like, I think the world gets changed by people who are in the world, and not of it, but who are in the world. Okay, so to pause the discussion right here, just so you know why we're even doing this, some of us never even think through the issue of whether we should withdraw or not. That's why we're doing this, right? I think there's one very beautiful tradition of people who have lived that sort of withdrawn life, and that's the monastic tradition. I think we've gotten a lot of really valuable writings, a lot of really wise people thinking about our faith. From that tradition, I think it's disrespectful to completely disregard it, something that I don't think that's bad. And I think they've done beautiful work through being, through being that sort of withdrawn type of lifestyle. Should we all be nuns and priests? No, but um, I don't think that's wrong. What I find interesting, by the way, in the discussion so far is when I ask about the impact like the relationship of church and society, so far all of us are thinking about how we are going to impact others. We haven't considered whether others are impacting us, which I would say is a great reason that the Amish withdraw. It's not so much that they think that's the best way they can impact others. By the way, I think there's a little bit of subtlety of pride in that assumption, that whenever we think of how we're going to relate to society, we're doing the changing. Well, we are, but it's just, are we changing them or are they changing us? So there may be pros to withdrawing that you haven't even considered because you're still thinking too much of how you're going to change people as opposed to be changed. Jason? Is it, is it all Christians or is it some Christians? Because I think that it would be hard to say all Christians need to set, set themselves apart. And also, 
for all the time or for only some of your life because no monk or very, very few monks or, or nuns set themselves apart entirely from culture. They would, they would set themselves apart from most of the culture for a lot of their, their life. They would have even more secluded times where they would really be able to delve into different practices and just kind of being away from the influences of this world. But then they would come back. But if you asked a monk or a monkess, what was it, a, a monixtist? I don't know. Like if you asked somebody, why do you do that? What is the benefit that you get from this lifestyle? Like, why have you done this? And, and specifically, how does this benefit society or benefit you? Do you know what they would respond? I mean, does anyone know what the response would be? Um, having a friend going off to the desert for 40 days and actually separating himself from the world to get back to the reality of where God is, he realized where the world was influencing him and how God could re-influence him back into the way of the word so that when he came back out of it, that he could actually preach and do things. So it's possible to do it for your own soul, all right? But I also suspect that if you talk to some monks, they would say they're also doing it for another reason in addition. Many of them that I've actually spoken to would say, our retreat to pray for the world is an important office within Christianity that few people are doing. Like, we're not just sitting up here, you know, just for our own soul. Like, there is a discipline going on here of intercession through what we do for all the prayers that we offer for the world from this place of no distraction and plenty of time to focus on those things. So it works both ways. I just want to kind of point that out. Let's go back this way. Jeremy? You hinted at, I think, where you're, you're trying to go and that we don't often consider the, the ways in which we are influenced ourselves and then the way in which we appropriate those things as Christian when, in fact, they're not so... The great example is the not of this world sticker, which I'm not sure that makes any sense to begin with, but if we just stop, don't analyze it there, but take the sticker and it's on the back of a gas guzzling SUV, right? <laughs> you know, and the iPod is probably plugged in, in into the tray in the inside, you know, and everybody's got clothes from expensive stuff. My, my point being that, like, I think when <coughs> we say we want to be set apart, I think that we're really not being fair about whether we actually know what that means and how much work that really entails because that might make us more Amish. I, th I think if we, if we began to consider the, the impact that just we have as human beings, not even as religious people, but as human beings, right, um, on this earth and in relation to other people, um, we, might, we might have to take that sticker off because I think most Christians are more of this world than they really are not. Okay, let's switch to some cons. What are the cons of being set apart, however you take that to mean? Somehow making yourself distinct in some way. Is there a con? I mean, should we embrace the culture? But what are the cons? Yeah. Well, I think Monique hinted at this a little while ago. Just because we set ourselves apart and we're still Christians doesn't mean that we're perfect and we're not going to sin. We're still sinful people. We still have a sin nature. And it's not as if withdrawing, separating ourselves completely makes for a perfect set of people. Okay. Some Christians feel like the need to be set apart from culture is to protect themselves from the influences where culture is bleeding in too fast. Some Christians feel like being set apart sets an example that people can look to and set up, as somebody said, an alternative that people can see and then find that as a witness. And the difficulties evaluating which is which, I just want to show you one example from someone. Some of you know John Howard Yoder. 
kind of comes from, well, not kind of comes from, is from the Mennonite tradition. And his solution, and this is just one, I'm not even prescribing this, but just see how somebody comes to this issue. Yoder sees that the church and the state often support one another's goals, what he calls like the Constantinian principle. The idea being that Christianity was doing really well until it became a religion that was state-sponsored, then everything kind of goes awry from that point. He points back to that that says that Christianity often supports the state, and the state often subtly can support Christianity or any faith in some countries. We saw that last week. That's why we went through that exercise last week, of seeing the subtle ways in which we lose important parts of our faith. He points out that Jesus rejected this temptation. What temptation specifically? The temptation to become some sort of earthly king, some sort of political leader. The temptation even facing Pilate to turn this into a political moment or a statement. He faced that temptation when he saw the Pharisees in the ways that they kind of confused power and faith at the same time for a governing purpose. And he says, no, Jesus rejected that even though it meant his own death to reject it. He could have just seized it. That was the temptation. It was one of the temptations even the devil gave him. So he rejects that temptation, and Yoder would say, Christians should also avoid this temptation. He'll say it specifically. Christians, for example, should not impose their convictions and values on those who do not share their beliefs. That's a statement of being set apart. We don't think of it very often. He says, for example, Christians should be the church, living as witnesses to Christ. That's what we should be doing. People should see that. And it should be an alternative. That's why that word struck me. Because he says it should be an alternative to society. Refusing to return evil for evil, living pacifist lifestyles, sharing material possession, giving freely in charity, i.e. Acts 2 and Acts 4, the beginnings of the church, like what we saw there. That's what he says we should be doing. The church is not doing anything like that, his comment would be, since probably Christendom rises. What do you think of that? That's just his prescription. Do you think that statement, Christians should not impose their convictions on values on those who do not share their beliefs? Rather, we should just be some sort of shining example, set apart, doing our thing, and doing it within our community so that people can see it and go, wow, that really is a different way of living. They're focused on what they're doing, not so much in trying to change the rest of us. What do you think of that? Can we really abdicate our role to transform culture and just say, hey, the rules really don't apply to people who aren't Christians. We shouldn't be spending our time trying to legislate them into the kingdom. What do you think? Melissa. If you're trying to impose your beliefs and your way of living onto other people, you need to step back and ask yourself, what am I missing? Because there's something I'm after that I don't have, some need that I have that's not filled, that I'm trying to surround myself with people who can be like that, you know? Does that make sense? Okay, yeah. Play it out, though. I mean, this would be a lot of the activity that we undertake if you believed Yoder's position. We just shouldn't be doing. It just isn't our job. Agree? Disagree? Yeah. I really agree with that. And I think it can become such a monumental waste of energy and so frustrating to people who are trying to legislate morality, to borrow a very often used phrase. They're focus is on, well, I have to get everybody to oppose abortion because then things will be perfect and everybody will do what they're supposed to do, but we're not really giving them a reason and we're not respecting that they don't believe like we believe, so why should they 
believe this aspect or that aspect. Okay. Philip. I don't know, I think it's an interesting perspective because there's some degree to which it paints our convictions as something we don't think should be done or should is important or not as important should be done as much as we should be doing it. Like if I think that taking care of the poor is a conviction I have, like according to what he's saying, like I shouldn't encourage anybody else to do that. I should just do it myself. But if I really want it to be accomplished well, I'd have to encourage other people to do it. Which I like I'm not even saying in a way that I think I necessarily disagree with it. It's just different. Okay. Jason? I think there is a distinction that I'm still trying to wrestle it with wrestle through it myself, but that is the difference between imposing and encouraging. Um, because living as an, a witness could include encouraging people to live differently, um, stating your reasons rather than making it by, by like imposing it by legislation, by making laws that people have to follow. I tell them about it, I show them about it, but I don't force them to do it by creating laws, by supporting laws that are basically forcing people to take my convictions and values. Okay, but to answer Philip's very real objection, Let's say that what he is saying is that Christians won't impose it or shouldn't spend their time trying to force, legislate, impose. But what they should do is, by example, living as a witness, encourage people through the way that Christ told his church to live. So the encouragement distinction you made, I'm going to modify slightly and say we do that by living it out according to him. So I don't want it to be a spoken thing where you say, instead of saying you must do this, I'm going to say you should do this. Like, if the only distinction is the nomenclature we use, then I don't want it to be that subtle of a distinction is what I'm saying. Brittany? Even on that point, Christians should not impose their convictions and values. Well, which convictions and values? I mean, that's a huge thing because they're not going to be like, oh yeah, we can just go around killing children. I mean, so it really depends. I mean, not that I would say that's just a Christian value or something, but it really depends on which ones you're talking about. And that's the critique of Yoder, by the way. So let's bring it up right now, because Philip's already started to go down that path. Let's for a moment assume that most of us, because especially your generation believes this, that we really shouldn't be legislating this into people's lives. So maybe a simple example would be that we wouldn't go to a protest over same-sex marriage. They would say that's just not the issue or the prerogative or even the place of the church. But the problem that comes up is that can't apply across the board, can it? For example, when Christians acted to abolish the slave trade or abolish slavery, first in England, then over here in the States, isn't that a place where it wasn't just like, well, we'll just live by witness and not have slaves in our own community? Isn't that more than just preaching against it? That actually involved active legislation to end something that most of us would consider absolutely evil. So most of us right now, if we said that, well, slavery is coming back into the U.S., and it is just in a different form right now, as you know, well, then do we just say, well, you know what, we won't do that in our community, but we really shouldn't be legislating it elsewhere. And that's what creates so much of a conundrum for us, because some of us would pick up a picket sign and go picket slavery. We wouldn't picket same-sex marriage, I think, from the comments I got back from you the first week, like most of us wouldn't go to that rally the model of involvement seems to depend on the view of the issue for us. For some issues we think, no, we have to get involved and we should legislate and we can't let this go on in our society. And for other things we go, the church has no business in that area. And that's kind of schizophrenic. 
And that's why so many of these issues are hard to kind of nail down because I think it depends on the issue for most of us. And that means we don't really have a methodology. It's a little ad hoc. Comments? Monique. Kind of a question. Just because we call ourselves Christians, like I'm a Christian, does that mean that everything that I get involved in, I have to label a Christian involvement? The issue, I would say, is a little irrelevant. Here's why. The question that we're really asking is, how should Christians spend their time? How should you, as a Christian, not Christians like as a labeled group, because it really does come down to that sometimes. Like, you have limited time, resource, you have mandates that come with the Great Commission, the Great Commandment. You have so many things that are to live a discipled life. And the questions we're asking are, do you take these on as well? Should we? And that's why when we come to even something like slavery, you might feel like that is an absolute abomination. Like, I must protest this because I feel like Christ compels me to. That's not necessarily opposing what we believe on society either. I'm just saying, would you advocate for its abolition? And if you say yes, isn't that imposing your convictions on someone else? Or even Christ's conviction, I mean, it might be yours. People that aren't Christians that oppose the same thing. I, I understand the distinction, but I still think it doesn't matter. Here's why. Whether the people are receptive to what we're trying to do or not, the point is really, do Christians seek to change those outside of their fold or not? That's still our issue. Because if you say, well, most people are against slavery, so they should be receptive. We're not really imposing anything on them. The question is, are we adopting a methodology that says that we should just worry about what goes on in our own community and be set apart that way by showing our example? Or must we engage society and the culture to actually transform it at times when we feel like it's gone astray? And the people... I'm not just saying Yoder's by himself, but there's a whole swath of people who feel like, no, the right way to do it is to set that example and be set apart. And I'm saying, a lot of you seem to agree with that, but when we change the issue from something like same-sex marriage, we change it to slavery, all the answers flip. And that's what I'm trying to point out. It just means that we're kind of swaying with whichever way the issue is, and we haven't really grasped, like, how should Christians actually engage with society, if at all? Yes. The question becomes how your, how the manner in which you plan on imposing your convictions and values. Because if it's done in a way that's contradictory to your very same Christian values that you're trying to promote, then that doesn't make sense either. Imposing your convictions through hatred, through spreading malice about people, through just generating rage and not loving your neighbor. I think that once those become your factors of imposition, then it's no longer acceptable. But if you're imposing your convictions through active discussion, through passionate belief about a subject, then I think that's, that's different. It has to do with how you're imposing your convictions. Okay. Jeremy? I think the kind of the distinction between being involved in something that's maybe non-Christian or like not of a Christian thing versus something that's a Christian thing is really just an illusion. I, mean, I think that ultimately, the things that we become engaged in and the activities that we put our support and our life behind really should be motivated from our sense of whatever our kind of our Christian ethic is. So to say that, well, I'm gonna support this and it's a non-Christian thing, but I'm gonna support it anyways, is kind of false in a sense because it seems like a, a false way that, that some things could be 
Christian or not, or that I can participate in this way, not as a Christian, but in this way I could as a Christian. Because ultimately, um, we should give a reason from the thing which is supposed to be the source of our life for why we participate in those things. Yeah, and it becomes very dualist and very docetist, like to actually believe that there's like we're going to live in these two spheres, uh, which actually contributes to our own undoing. By the way, in the end, we'll talk about, but. I mean, Jesus is the Lord of all or not at all. So it's one of those. And, and that means that for the Christian, there really isn't Christian or not Christian things. Everything is under Christ's lordship. You know, unless we're defining Christian as just like things we put the label on, which I disagree with. I mean, I mean as a Christ follower, like, it's his universe. It belongs to him. It's all under his authority one way or another. Whether people recognize that or not is a different issue. Yeah. I also think it's... it's just a little bit strange or difficult. Like even if we say not imposing is just legislating, like I think it becomes difficult in like a democratic country where like if someone has a proposition or something that fits with my value as a Christian, then I should I say, well, I should vote against it because I don't want to impose my beliefs on other people. Like if there's a country where it's like completely not democratic at all and I have no say in it, then well, yeah, it's a lot easier to say I won't legislate my values because I have no option to. But like it's sort of in our I don't know, like in a democratic country, it's a little bit more strange. Okay. Scott? Well, I look at it as if we're in society that we lost, that we've said we're stepping back, we're not going to do anything, and where is it progressed to society today? But if we don't take a stance in areas that God would have taken, I think, a stance in, to where the Bible talks about society going down and downhill spiral and work and end, we need to start taking a idea and start going, well, this is an area we are going to defend. I think so many times we're afraid to say, oh, I'm going to step in because we're afraid of what other people are going to think. I don't see Jesus a lot of times caring what the other people thought of him. The Pharisees, he was more like, I'm just going to say it. Okay. Last comment on this side, anything? Yeah. It's interesting, right, that I think in the scriptures, the passage where Jesus is most critical is, in fact, with those who legislate. It's with the Pharisees that he seems to be so vocal with. And that's, like, that's a deeper irony that, like, the people who come to him and who are terrible people and sinners and prostitutes, all these things, you know, he does say things like, you know, your, your sins are forgiven. Right? He, he, it's not like he polishes over it. But the people that he seems to be like, bam, 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 are those who legislate. Are those who make other people's lives more difficult, in a sense. Uh, so I just want to point that out. And, and back to my original comment, though, and this is, I think, where it gets complicated, is because, you know, I mentioned our convictions should come from kind of our personal ethics, but I already know that in this room we're going to have very different personal ethics. So, you know, what one person may say we need to become involved in because that's a violation, I would say, I disagree with you. I don't think it's a violation. And I think, you know, and, and, and then it goes from there. And that's the more complicated um, method, which I feel like you're trying to get at, but which we haven't really... We probably may not ever agree, but the point is, if we had even agreement just in this room, we'd still have to decide how to engage. Let me bring up this, this first real fast. I mean, some people would read into what Yoder and Stanley Hauerwas have said, uh, you know, subsequent to Yoder, maybe an echo of this verse. This is 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 13. Listen to what Paul is saying here. I have written you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave the world. 
But now I'm writing to you that you not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or a slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler. With such a man, do not even eat. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked man from among you. That's Paul's admonition. You can hear the echoes of that care for what's going on inside. Don't be so concerned about those outside. I'm not talking about the sexually immoral in general. He'd say you'd have to flee the whole world. Just, I'm talking about don't associate with the sexually immoral among you. So you could say on one side of this equation, you set up that idea. Maybe we should just be tending our own and setting up ourselves as examples and living in communities that are set apart. But that is so hard for me to think about all the other things that we have stood for at times that seem like right things to do. And I'll confess that the hardest one I always come back to when I'm tempted to withdraw is a guy like William Wilberforce, who spent so many years specifically trying to legislate a right to abolish the slave trade. Because that seems like such a good example of somebody who I feel like I would be saying, you shouldn't do that next time. But all of us would think that's a good thing that he did. So I'm not trying to say you have to pick one or the other. It's just hard to pick one. Either way. Here's another verse. First Peter chapter 2. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in this world, that's the description, to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. That's the admonition in 1 Peter. You're aliens and strangers, not really part of it, but at the same time living among them to be that witness that people can see that light that's going on. So again, from Scripture I see some echo of the same kind of concept that begins to tell us maybe that's kind of the way that it might be on some issues. You guys know this one. We kind of referred to it yet last week just because it seemed like so much of the city on a hill language was kind of absconded with to make America this great city on a hill and to glorify America as the new Israel, which many, many people have done. But here's another example from Matthew 5. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and give light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. There is the city on a hill, light, shining example. And somebody would also probably point out that we've missed the first part, going back to verse 13, that we're also supposed to be the salt of the earth. And the reason I put that one up second is because it seems like salt would have a very hard time impacting anything if it didn't actually connect and touch that thing. Last comments? Should we be set apart? Let's take a vote. Withdraw? Anyone for withdraw? Amish? Nobody? I still feel some people, you know, when we talked about monks and I still feel that some people are. Should the majority of Christians? No. 
but I think that is a significant, I'm not ready to throw out the monastic life and call them bad, you know, witnesses, no way. Like in a lot of people, some of our greatest writings are at Christianity. <laughs> St. John of the Cross, these people who spent decades living and writing and praying and serving the poor, there's no way you can get rid of that. I think if you brought an Amish person in here and asked them why do you spend your time in communities that are set apart completely, like in the withdrawal sense, they would say that the culture threatens to pollute our way of life and our faith. I think that would be one of the answers. So let me ask you the same question. If society in this country got to the point where it threatened to pollute completely and corrupt us and actually take from us maybe even, uh, not the rights, but I mean the, it would just stand so much against what we believe that it starts to threaten belief within our own communities, would you withdraw at that point or would you still continue to go? Yes. I think that comes back to what we said last week when you forced an ultimatum, God has to be first. You have to choose your faith. Otherwise, how can you call yourself a Christian if that's not if that's not what defines you, if culture defines you more than your faith in God, then that's not acceptable. God has to be first. Okay, AJ? Uh, I mean, just kind of uh, thinking about more about the withdrawing and stuff, I, I can understand a little bit um, just the reasoning for that because, I mean, at birth you're already, you know, you're already being manipulated in some ways, you know, through advertising, through what you wear, through what your parents buy you. Um, you know, I can see, I can see you living outside of that as, as protecting your faith and your values because you don't have those, you know, those advertisements. You don't have all those other things, you know, kind of uh, manipulating you. And I think the thing is, is that a lot of Christians don't know that they're being recycled into that ideology daily, you know, because you know, advertising, advertisement, and um, you know, companies have gotten so good at it. Um, but I think that I can, I can definitely understand the being withdrawn and, and the, the um, protecting of the faith and values that, that, would come, that would come with that. Okay. Anyone else? Let's take that vote again real fast. If it actually threatened to change our faith to the point where our, like, I don't know, our children were no longer going to believe in God and society in any way, would you withdraw then? Anybody withdraw at that point? A few more? Yeah, I was just going to say the same thing. I mean, all of the things you were describing, like where threats do take away more things than what would be Christian, and I mean, I think we're already there. Okay, yeah. I'm just having a hard time with this concept of society creeping in and, like, corrupting us. We're already corrupt. We're all sinful. We're not different than society, except for in that we choose Christ, and we are trying avidly to follow him and, like, live out the things we believe. We already have those desires in us, so to withdraw completely from society, A, I don't think would change that. People would still have those desires. B, I don't even think it's like a real concept that society is so over-encroaching that our children don't even have a chance if they go to like a public school. It's like, at what point do you take responsibility for your own faith and talking and instilling it to your children and like being able to kind of live among what's going on around you without participating? Okay, AJ? Well, maybe that means protecting your kids by, admit, you know, not having them associated, you know, not giving them the chance to be in a public school to deal with that. I'm not saying that that's good, but I'm saying that, you know, if, if you know, the, to give them a chance maybe means taking them out of those systems and homeschooling them or whatever. You know, I used to think if you homeschooled your kids, you should be forced to drive a horse-drawn buggy. That was my view, <laughs> right? Like, that, that was it, because you were at that level. But let me say that in, in the last 15 years since I first formulated that opinion, there's a part of me that understands what people are doing. I don't know that it's going to work. I don't even know that it's effective. But now at least I understand what you just said and the motivation behind it is that is actually a way of saying, you know what, there's a level of influence in our society that threatens to take away like, or, or overwhelm even what I want to teach my children about God and about other things. And I would want to be able to influence that more. 
so I might have to withdraw them from that place. That's a sense of withdrawal. Like I said, I don't know that it works. I don't even know that it's good. But I understand where it's coming from finally because I think people are feeling like it's just too overwhelming. And that's a place where people are withdrawing. Last comment? Philip? Yeah, I think like, I agree with the idea that the possibility of polluting our like, ideas, that's already the case we're in. It's also, I think it's always the case. Always has been the case. Like, there's evil in the world. But I mean, I don't, I don't think that hypothesis or that potential of like, well, what if it becomes so there's no possible way that someone can live a Christian life because the society puts me like, that's taking God out of the picture, like to some degree and saying, well, like, God can't affect it. Which, so I think it's, it, it's, it's not saying a condition because it's a condition that's always the case. And my last comment would be that we're also taking out of the picture martyrdom, which is exactly what Yoder was talking about and many others who would call you to a radical form of Christianity would remind you. Like if living out your Christian faith, even in society unlike America at the present, but like America soon, would actually cost you your life for living it out, that's not a reason not to live it out anyway. So withdrawal or no withdrawal, let's say you don't have a choice, then that is the ultimate choice. That's the choice that Christ made. For other reasons as well, but he certainly, if you just look at the story of what he was doing, that's exactly what he was doing. He was refusing to compromise even to death and calls us to do the very same thing. So I think at some point, that's something we've also taken out of the equation, is just at some point society may push us into such a corner, if that were to happen here or elsewhere, that maybe that is the choice you make. You go, fine, that's it. I, I refuse to put that down. By the way, a similar question that we're not going to go into, just for you to think about, is can Christians ever really be set apart from the culture? Aren't they already part of the culture no matter what? And, and look at how this question plays out. Does culture shape the beliefs and attitudes of Christians? I mean, of course it does. And I'm going to end with this thought to leave into maybe our discussion for next week. So look at this. Stanley Hauerwas kind of makes this point when he's always talking to people. He says that the problem that we have in general, I don't know, he's not talking about specific people in this room, is a problem we discussed last week, that people are first American and then they're Christian. And so they filter everything about their faith through that lens. And we see that all the time. And you know that in here we're always struggling to kind of break that lens if at all possible to make sure that our allegiance is in the right place. But it's true that culture affects us. So maybe that's why you could have a university that is committed to like the original intent of the Constitution that's a Christian university or that believes in the role of limited government. I mean, yeah, that's fine if you believe that, if you want to teach that in your poli-sci classes, but is that really the mission of a Christian university? But that's because that's what you interpret an American view to be. So, so if you listen to Harawas, he would say, that is our problem that we're Americans first and Christians second, and we actually diminish Christianity as a result. I think that's an interesting perspective. I would actually slightly disagree and say he's missed a few layers, in my opinion. My own formulation is it looks more like this. We're first American, then we're ideological, then we're political, and finally we're Christian. So for example, you might first be an American, you might also be a conservative, so you choose a political bend and become Republican, and then you read your Christianity into that. And all those layers influence it. And it seems like that's happening more and more. I mean, I have conversations with people all the time that resemble what I'm talking about with this university. I have people, I'm not even sure how we're having a conversation about this. We talked about it a couple weeks ago, or maybe it was last week, when I was mentioning Jill's dad, like John McKinney, he was talking to a guy in his church who was insistent that the, you know, the Bible supports the Second Amendment. I mean, where do you get that from? You could only really get to that kind of view if you followed through this kind of paradigm. But the opposite's just as true. I mean, let's not pick on one person or another. 
I mean, there are some people who believe like, yes, I'm first this, then I'm liberal, so I must join this party, and then I'm going to read my Christianity in light of that lens. And they bend everything they hear from that perspective. You know, we are perspectivists. All of us hear things from the perspective that we want to hear it from. I could make a statement and two people hear it from different perspectives because they'd affirm something that they want to affirm. And we have to be very careful about this, especially when it comes to our faith. Because if I just give you one perspective of one thing, I could lead you down a path that's completely illogical, but we wouldn't really understand it unless I showed you the other side. And if you're already decided on who you are at all these different layers, I think this is completely upside down. I mean, it's clear. I think we need to start with what does Christ require. And Jeremy's brought up a couple times, that's going to be hard. We're going to have disagreements about it. We're going to wrestle together. But we'd be at least closer to that task if at least we got the order right. And maybe it just stops with the first one, Christian. And there might be room for our participation in some sort of society if we could figure out the method, which we seem to be still having some trouble doing. But I think that we have to be clear that culture is influencing us. It's already happening. And as we start to talk about next week, when we start to talk about the influence of secularization, you'll see that it's influencing it more and more all the time. I'll leave it there. Okay? For some of you who are like tuning in thinking, like, where are we going? What are we doing with this? Some of us have never thought through these issues of what am I supposed to do in terms of my societal relationships. That's what I'm trying to get us to think through. That even when we follow the tenets that Christ has laid within our community, the question is always open. Is it just for us? Is it just for me? Or do I have some sort of engagement with the society around me to try to make this work? And that might help us answer whether we should show up to a protest over a proposed Islamic center. Let's close up and pray. Lord, I pray that we've at least stewarded this time in just a modicum of what you want us to do. Lord, we're always in the middle of the series still struggling to find a way out of the holes that we've dug for ourselves. And Lord, in faith, I pray right now that you would shed light on this topic for us individually and even collectively as a group, that in the comments that come from this group, and Lord, I'm so thankful that your spirit constantly speaks in all of the wrestling that goes on in this group, but that from these comments, we might start to get a sense of the direction you want us to go. Lord, this very group is a form of the deliberation that we see in the church when people come together and speak to one another and deliberate together in a way to try to find consensus for your people. So, Lord, we take this exercise in here and we ask specifically, Lord, help us to figure out the way that we're supposed to engage society. And simultaneously, Lord, we pray for the way that society is already affecting us. Lord, open our eyes to the places that we have become more American or more conservative or more liberal or more entrenched to ideas that have nothing to do with what you want your people to do. Take away that blindness, Lord, even if it's subtle, show it to us clearly so that we might be purified and set apart for you and do the things that you want us to focus on, Lord. Pray this in your name. Amen.